0: This morning's scripture is uh, from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger into water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, "'Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, "'for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, "'lest they also come to this place of torment.' But Abraham said, "'They have Moses and the prophets. "'Let them hear them.' But he said, "'No, Father Abraham, "'but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent.' But he said to him, "'If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets,' Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead.
1: If you'll stay right there. We will go down. There are a lot of uh, things that you can get out of this verse technically. And I want to go, and I don't want you to miss these things, these implications. Let me say, first of all, that you, this is a parable. And it's dangerous to build a detailed, sophisticated theology from a parable. A parable is meant to touch both the hearts and to be an approximation, not a detailed or denotative account of the truth. But there are several very plain implications that Jesus had about the afterlife that I do not want you to to, uh, misunderstand or waver about. And so let me just go down this with you and give you I'm not going to preach a lot from the, from the uh, sermon outline you have. That's good stuff. Uh, but you can pretty much look at that and see where I was going. Let me give you ten things that you can learn from this parable about what Jesus believed about the afterlife. All right? First of all, this is in addition to what you have there, so you might want to write these down. First of all, Jesus believed in hell. Now, I've read commentaries that says it's unfortunate that King James translates this hell because it was really translated Hades, which was an abode for the dead until they reached their final destination and so on and so forth. The reason Jesus used that term was because the Jews were not yet theologically sophisticated enough to have developed the full doctrine of hell. Hades was a precursor (laughs) forgive the pun, but don't miss it, was a precursor to the concept of hell, along to the developing theology of where he would finally lead his church. Jesus believed in hell. Anytime you face an organization or a cult that says to you, there is no hell, they disagree with Jesus. Unitarian Universalist Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, you can go on down the line, who say there is no hell. I would love to believe that there is no hell. I would truly love to believe it. That would really tickle me. But I'm not willing to go up against Jesus in this thing. I'm not willing to claim that I knew more than he knows. You know, somebody gave me a piece of advice one time that has saved me so much heartache and frustration. Let me just pass it on to you. Somebody took me aside one time when I was a little kid. I was real argumentative. And I really respected this individual. And I would argue anything. You know, just to argue it. He took me aside and said, Joey, I know you love to argue. But let me give you a piece of advice. It will save you immeasurable frustration and turmoil if in your life you don't argue things you can't win i can't win this one i'm going to i'm not going to argue it okay now you want you might want to try to find verses in there that eliminate hell for your own personal comfortability But you've got to go up against Jesus to do it. Jesus believed in hell. It says it here. It says it in Matthew 25. It says it in many other places in the Bible. Jesus believed in hell. Second, heaven is a place of fulfillment and love. Verse 22, look at this. Now, it came about that when the poor man died, he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Do you realize that after you die, there is not one moment that you're alone? If you're going to heaven, there is not one moment that you're alone. It intimates that your path to heaven will be accompanied by a great deal of loving care and that you will not miss that um, that kind of care. Third, we can recognize people on both sides after death. Verse 23... And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. And being in torment, he saw Abraham far away. Now, how would he know Abraham? He had never met Abraham. Abraham had died hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. How would he know him? I don't know. He knew him. So you will know the people on both sides. They will be recognizable to you. And he saw Lazarus. Uh, He named him by name. And he said he saw Lazarus in his bosom. So part of both sides of death is that you will be able to see who's on the other side. That's the intimation of this parable. I I hear people say, you know, sometimes, well, when I get to heaven, you know, will I recognize my grandmother? Will I be able to know her? Will Will I be able to see my family? Will I know them? Absolutely. On one side or the other, you'll be able to see where they are. Fourth, those in hell retain their basic character. They do not repent and change their minds. Look at verse 24 and verse 27. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and said Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off my tongue for I am in agony and flame." In other words, I want you to do me a favor. This guy's in hell. He's burning in hell because he lived a life of total selfishness and he still has the character of, I want you to do something for me and send that lackey so that he can serve me. He has not yet repented. He has not said, I blew it. You deserve to be there. I deserve to be here. When Jesus died, there were two thieves on the cross. They were these figures. One of them said, if you're so powerful, get us down. That was the rich man's character. Use it to help me. The other thief said, wait a minute. He does not deserve, we deserve to be here. He does not deserve to be here. And he turned to Jesus and he said, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. He didn't say, take me with you. He just said, remember me. And to that person, Jesus said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You see the heart that changes and realizes God's system of justice is the one that gets saved. And so the people in hell have not yet repented. He's trying to bargain with Abraham, trying to A, excuse his own behavior, and B, at least be remembered well, because he's doing his brothers a favor. Okay. Fifth, Our earthly life determines our destination. And sixth, the judgment is everlasting. Let me show you something. Verses 25 and 26. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. Now, the the verb here is an aorist tense. And what that says in Greek is that everything that was given you was deposited at one, at one fell swoop. That doesn't mean it all came at one time, but it was all given you in lump sum in order to see what you would do with it. It's not a continuing verb. It doesn't say, we gave you a little bit here, we gave you a little bit here, we gave you a little bit here. It said, when you look over your life and you see what you've done, okay, so that's an aorist tense. It's a one-time event. You were given, okay? You received your good things. and Likewise, Lazarus received bad things. But now he has been comforted here and you are in agony. Now there is a connection there. I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. Many times in the Bible, there is a connection between what th- things that don't look connected. Last week, we read a verse that said, He who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. What I don't want you to miss there is there is a connection. He who divorces his wife in order to marry another. Jesus was looking at the um, hypocrisy of the whole thing. There were people who would get an alternative and then make everything legal and look right just so that they can complete the lust that was in their heart that started when they were married. And Jesus said, you can make it look as legal as you want all you're doing is carrying through on your adulterous lust. See? Didn't cut him any slack. There was a connection there. Well, there's a connection here. And he's saying, basically, look, you had your good stuff, and Lazarus had his bad stuff. There's a connection. There could have been a redistribution of goods. Because you kept your good stuff, and Lazarus had all bad stuff, and because you would not release it, here you are. Now, and, and uh, so on and so forth. And besides all of this, there is between us fixed. A great, a great chasm fixed. Now, that verb is in the perfect, indicative, present tense. And what it means is, or passive tense, I'm sorry. And what it means is this. Perfect means it's an, it's a, it, it has been done, and the results are still lasting. Indicative is a statement. I mean, that's where they get the, the, the term fixed, you know. It, it is, a, it is a, uh, it's a given, okay? And passive means you had nothing to do with it. Part of the laws of the universe is that this chasm has been created and it is not a personal chasm. It is one that has been created before, the, before, you, were crea- before you came on the scene in order to divide... And so he's saying that part of it is your responsibility and the result has always been that it would divide some people according to their, according to their appetites, according to their own behavior. Let me, let me share something with you. If you would turn to John chapter 3. Cannot imp- I cannot impress upon you how important this stuff is. Everyone knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at John 3.17 and 3.18. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That word judge is krino. Greek is krino, and it means to condemn the world. He did not come into the world for the purpose of sending anybody to hell. But that the world, the whole world now, watch out for your predestination, folks. Watch out for you five-point Calvinists. The world might be saved. All right? Now, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God 19 and this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil it is real clear in that passage whose fault it is that there is a heaven and a hell and how we end up there if we are in this world and we love our deeds rather than coming to the light and it's a lot of work coming to the light But let me just share with you the reason people don't follow God is because they just flat don't want to change. I have yet to find someone who I could either not come up with equal intellectual arguments or find someone to come up with superior intellectual arguments for the existence of God and for the validity of the ministry and the theology of Jesus Christ, naming naming him as exactly who he said he was, who in the end, if they did not say yes and turn their lives over to God, it wasn't because they were having intellectual problems, it was because they didn't want to. They just flat didn't want to. It's too much work, and it's too much fun living for me. Men love the darkness rather than the light. Let's call a spade a spade, all right? Let's not get into all of these, you know, every every week I have somebody call and uh, uh, one or two people call and just say, what does your church believe? And they have this long list of doctrines, you know? This week I had somebody call, and I like this. I like the fact that somebody would call and check out what our theology is. That shows me that somebody cares, you know, and somebody wants to be a thinking Christian. And we love people who think. We want to develop thinking Christians. But this guy called and he said, well, do you believe in uh, John MacArthur's version of salvation? He said, oh, I have some soteriological uh, concerns. I thought, whoa, okay, lay em on me. So, said, do you believe in John MacArthur's that in order to be genuinely saved, you have to follow with your conduct, or do you believe in the, and he he gave away where he was, do you believe in the easy believism of Charles Ryrie that says, basically, if you agree to it intellectually, you're saved. And I said, well, basically, I am to be genuinely converted, you have to have turned your life over to God. I mean, there has to be a time when you turned your life over to God and it changed your life and you depended upon him and he was in control. I don't think just intellectually believing in Jesus Christ, the demons intellectually believe in Jesus Christ. I don't think just intellectually believing in Jesus Christ. Everybody, I mean, everybody who has half a brain can intellectually believe in Jesus Christ. I don't think that's what salvation is all about. Well, he said, I think this will be the issues of the 90s. You know what I mean, everybody's talking about this is going to be the issue of the 90s. Whether or not, you know, between these two doctrines of salvation, I burst out laughing. I, heard, I could tell I hurt his feelings. And I said, well, son, I, I didn't call him son. I, I said, <laughs> I said, you know what? Do- doctrine, sound doctrine is very important to us here. But what is even more important is... What is Jesus Christ saying to us personally and what is going to change in our lives? Because we can believe and be as theologically sophisticated as you please and never change our lives. As a matter of fact, we can adjust our theological sophistication to make ourselves happy. The bottom line is, are you going to follow God or are you going to follow you? That's the bottom line. And so, well, let me get on with my list because I always do this. Okay, number seven. There are people in hell, or in heaven, I'm sorry, that are so full of love that they would live in hell to minister. Can you imagine that? Look at verse 26. There's this great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over From here to you may not be able. Can you imagine the love in a person's heart that would make them desire to suffer torment in order to be with someone else? It's tremendous. Eight, part of being in hell is the guilt felt or the responsibility felt for those who are still on earth. Starting with verse 28, he had a concern for his brothers. He had a concern for his brothers. I believe truly that if people end up in hell, It will be a point at which not only are they in agony over their loneliness. And that's what hell is. It's being all alone. But they will be in agony for the the times that they didn't point other people to God. The, The opportunities they had. And I don't mean standing out on a street corner with a bullhorn. Although if you're called to that, do it. I mean the times when very easily you could have encouraged or increased the faith of somebody else. You could have just said a couple of words like, why don't we just pray about this? Or maybe, you know, that's too complicated for me, but trust God. Somehow he'll pull you through this. And pointing someone to God. I believe that when we do that, we will have the fruitfulness of that, but also if we live a life that does not do that and we are concerned only for ourselves, we will have the g- regret of that. Notice here that the timeline, you still see people when you're in the afterlife, you still see people and observe people and are concerned to people about people on the earth. Okay? Okay, go ahead. Let's, let's go ahead. Number nine, there's still time to change. Verse 29. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, prophets, let them hear them. In other words, they have the opportunity right now to change. So there is not a time. Again, here we go with the five-point Calvinism. And I, I appreciate some of Calvinism, I really do. But there is not a time when you cannot change, except in the case of a reprobate heart. And we will talk about that someday, later on. Um, I've not noticed any in here. Number 10, you have all the theology and witnesses that you now need. You know what? Some of you are thinking, if I could just have a different church situation, maybe I could really get into this. Well, maybe you could. But you've got everything you need right now you have everything you need right now to, procre- to progress and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God would send you a vision, if God would do a miracle for you, it would not be to your advantage. Your advantage right now is to follow what he's given you as he's given it to you. And if he never gives you a miracle, and if he never gives you a vision, it's because you flat didn't need it. Okay, now those are the 10. Now let me just talk to you. You You know what this parable is about? This parable is about making a proactive decision to love. Proactive as differentiated from reactive. Most people that go through life react They want a Christian reaction. And the reason that they need to react so much is because they never made their mind up in the first place what they would do. They waited, and they let circumstances, both their own and other people's circumstances, they let let, uh, worldly concerns determine how they would respond to the world. That's a reactive decision. Lazarus had every, or I'm sorry, the rich man had everything he needed for a proactive decision. First of all, he was a Jew. We know he was a Jew because he called Abraham father. He couldn't be Islamic. The Islam religion wasn't created for another 600 years. He was a Jew. Those were the only people that called Abraham father. If he was a Jew, if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 25 for me, with me. 25th chapter of Leviticus. If he was a Jew, he knew from Jump Street what he had to do as far as contributing to a poor person. That had been taught often in the Jewish religion. Let me give you just a couple of passages. First, verse 35 in Leviticus chapter 25 He would have been taught this. Now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 9. And verse 11, here's another, here's another teaching. It's talking about the Jubilee year. It's talking about the, the, uh, um, the year when debts are forgiven. It says, beware lest, the, lest there is a base thought in your heart. Now, this is a thought of greed. Greed saying, the seventh year, uh, the year of remission is near. This is a year when all debts were forgiven. And eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. The rich man knew that if he did not give his brother anything that his brother had a case against him with the Lord. Now look at verse 11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. What did Jesus say? The poor will always be with you, didn't he? Therefore I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to what? Your brother. There is always a connectedness between you and the poor people in proximity. The poor people that are in your life to your needy and poor in your land. As a Jew, he knew what to do. It was a matter of theology. He knew what to do. If you are a person of wealth and there is a person in need, you don't, it's a matter of common sense. If you have more than enough to give to that person, you don't have to say, God Should I share with this person? I mean, if you know that this isn't some great gambit this guy's doing and he's not living in a a leech-like life and he's true, yes, absolutely, share it. Absolutely. And to those who much has been given, what did the Lord say? Much will be expected. You are given that as a trustee. That's not your money. That's God's money. And so if you don't share it, What you're doing is hardening your heart toward your brother. And that is, that's a reactive decision. You have got the money. You never thought you'd have this much money. I mean, you're finally out of debt and here comes a person in need. And you, what, you are reacting to that. You are saying, oh golly, this money feels so nice. I'd rather not. Maybe I can just kind of wall myself up in a world of my own. That's hardening your heart. Hardening your heart does not mean you don't have any feelings anymore. It means that your feelings are all pointed toward yourself. I told somebody the other day, at a hard heart, he almost passed out. He said, how can you say that? I still laugh, I still cry, I still celebrate. And I said, brother, those feelings are all pointed toward you. You haven't for a minute identified or sympathized with anybody outside your own circumstance. That's a hard heart. It doesn't mean you can't feel. It means you're totally involved with self. You know, one of the things that really encourages me and scares me at the same time are all the self-help groups going on right now. I really believe that in order to operate, everyone must have a modicum of self-esteem. You've got to believe that God didn't make a mistake when he created you. He knew what he was doing. He created you for a purpose. You are of inestimable worth to God. But here comes the danger. You can get addicted to those groups. And you can go to those groups every week and say, let's talk about me. Let's see what's going on in my life. Let's improve me. I want to be the best me I can be. Unless you are doing that in order to love someone else more effectively. That is the same kind of exercise in toxic self-suffocation as the rich man who stayed boarded up in his house and fed himself with all kinds of glorious food. There really is no difference. The difference is you are getting your goodies from theological or from, from, from therapeutic language and from attention from other people. And the other guy got his goodies from food and parties. The question is, am I loving better? That's the question. Not how improved am I? Am I loving better? See, love is a proactive. You have to decide before you go through the circumstances, before you ever get the reaction from the other person, you have to decide, I will love, period. No matter what their response, no matter what their reaction, I will love. It's not a matter of great salvation by works, and I'm doing more good deeds than anybody else. (laughs) There's a story in this month's so Reader's just Digest just about it. Guys, he said, my worst nightmare is to go to heaven. I'm standing behind Mother Teresa, and the Lord comes over to Mother Teresa and said, you know, you just didn't do enough. <laughs> it's not a matter. It's not a matter of having more good works than anybody else. That's not what salvation... Salvation comes from turning your life over to Jesus Christ but it is a proactive decision to love. I will love like God wants me to love no matter what. You know, there ought to be in your life something more stable than a good reaction to other people. Your kids, your neighbors, your workmates ought to be able to see in you something that is more secure, something that is higher, than just a godly reaction to other people. They ought to be able to see something in you that would stay as wonderful as it is, no matter how horrible the circumstances, no matter how much guff they got from other people, no matter how much you were pumped up by emotional preachers, no matter how much guilt was laid on you by other kinds of preachers, no matter what, Your circumstances were there ought to be a proactive decision in you. I'm going to love no matter what. They ought to be able to see that in you. That's the most tremendous witness. I want for my kids to see in me. Not a tremendous reaction to tremendous preaching. Not an inspired you know, me getting an idea and going off half cocked in order to save the world. But a decision that I made a long time ago to override every other decision that I would make otherwise. Let me tell you a story. I, got a, I, got, I was riding down so I was taking my son to school this, this uh, week, riding down a side street, and the side of my tire blew out. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, I, I, I don't want Josh to... To see me blow a cork or get mad or whatever. And so we, we pull over, we change the tire, you know, and it's, we're all greasy and sweaty. And I take him on to school and, and I got to go home and change. There's grease all over the place and so on and so forth. So I said, well, you know, this, the side blew out. So maybe I can get, it's only at 7,000 miles on the tire. And I said, maybe I can get a, a uh, 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 refund, you know. So I took it to the dealer where I got it. I said, look at this. Now I know driving, I know driving into that dealer. And I'm saying, Lord, I know that there is not a chance, really, well, I, don't, I won't use the theological language, but there's not, there's not a chance, a very big chance, that he's going to give me my money back on this. I know that. I know that going in. But I feel like all I ought to ask, you know. So give me the proactive love. No matter what the reaction is, give me the proactive love. So I'm standing there waiting in line, and I'm thinking, you know, whenever, whenever I go see a mechanic, I'm feeling like the mechanic is thinking, I mean, he says, sir, can I help you? Very politely, but what I think, what I think he's thinking is, you broke your car, didn't you? You had a perfectly good car, you're driving around, you broke your car, now you want me to fix your mess. And so that's what I'm thinking, you know. Meanwhile, I'm saying, well, you know, I was driving down the street and the side of my tire blew out and, and it looks to me like it could have been a, uh, um, a structural um, um, weakness. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying. Inside of me, I'm going, oh yeah, I did, I really messed my tire I did my And tire. I'm tired, i please fix my tire. Don't charge me anybody, please. That's what I'm feeling like inside. So the guy looks at the tire says, yeah, that tire was cut. I said, cut. I, it was fine when I left home. I'm just driving down the street and it blows out. No, cut. It's cut. It's cut. I said, how could it be cut? Now, now let me say this. I do not believe anybody goes to mechanics school to become a crook. It's too much work. I mean, would you dress up? Eight hours a day and sweat and get greasy to cheat somebody out of a few bucks? Of course not. The guy's basically honest. But I know, you know, that it's kind of fishy to have a tire blow out the side. So he says, well, I'll tell you what. (laughs) I'll tell you what I think. He says, I said, it's clear up here on the side. He said, well, let me tell you how it could happen. He said he pushes down. The tire's off the rim by now. Pushes down so the 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 tire kind of you know the sides of the tire kind of goes out. And then he points the thing at a forty five degree angle. Say, see, if you roll that around like that, you could just pick up something in the road and get cut. I thought, how stupid of me. (laughs) I did not realize I was going down the street like I usually do on two tires. (laughs) At a 45 degree, of course, I picked up something in the street. My fault. But see, the point is, I decided before I ever went in there that I would love him. And I decided before I ever went in there that I would be a Christian witness. Before I ever went in there, my reaction was not in his hands. It was told to me from the beginning of time. And that's where I was taking my direction from. Let me ask you to make the same decision. Whatever comes up in your life, no matter how frustrating, no matter how rejection-oriented, don't let the circumstance decide for you what your reaction's going to be. Proactive love. Because everyone else in the world, everything else in the world, would love to make a decision for you. And if you never make the decision to begin with, it'll be made for you. And it won't be a good one. You can't trust the direction of your life to the circumstance that get, gets sent to you in the world. Cannot trust it. So let me, let me just ask you to do something right now. I, we won't have upfront front prayer time this morning because I always run late and I talk too long and I'll try to do better next week. Let me ask you to do this. First of all, if you have never, never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and I don't mean believe in Jesus Christ, I mean turn your life over to His direction and control. That's what I mean. Make it. Because if you don't, you're trusting your salvation to your circumstances, to your own philosophy, to whatever good works you do. And let me tell you something, there aren't enough. And there is a hell. And it is lonely. And when he got up and he asked for Father Abraham, to get, for Lazarus to get him a drink, it was like a little kid coming out of his room at night wanting a drink. The problem isn't drink. The problem is loneliness and darkness and wanting to be with somebody else. That's a problem. That's what hell is like. Don't go out of here risking that. If you would turn your life over to Christ, I'll say a prayer with you in just a little bit, and I'll help you do that. And if you did, please tell somebody about it, me or one of the other elders, and we'll help you grow in Christ. Secondly, I know some of you are having trouble living a reactive life and you've got people in your life that are draining you. God's just put them on your doorstep and they won't go away. They're there. And you've got enough to get them through. You can't cure their problems. They're responsible for their own problems, but you've got enough to minister to them. And you've been avoiding it. Don't any longer. That's not what God wants. And it's not a position of weakness and retreat that God wants to have you in. It's a position of help and strength. It's a position of example and ministry. That's where he wants you. He doesn't want the world controlling your life. He wants you adding something to the world no matter what the world does to you. Would you make that decision this morning? Pray with me. God, you have fixed the laws of this universe from the beginning of time. And your word says that we are without excuse. We have a witness in our hearts that tell us that you're in charge. We can choose to follow you Or we can choose to go on our own way, building our walls, enjoying ourselves as much as we can until there's no more time. I ask you on behalf of those here this morning who believe in you intellectually but have not turned their lives over to you. They do not pray to you before their decisions. They do not consider you in any daily aspect of their life. If with any kind of regularity, unless they're in an emergency, I I pray that you will save them this morning from their own intellectualism and that they can literally turn their life over to your control and have you as their major concern and their major director. And I would pray for the rest of us, Lord, that have made that decision, that continual continually take it back because we figure that the emergencies that come up are really our business instead of yours. Give us the strength to respond to people, no matter what their drain, no matter what their hostility, no matter what their circumstance, and no matter how much you've given us that we could hoard. I ask you, Lord, direct our lives, help us this morning to put ourselves back under your direct supervision and give us the love that can only come from you. We can't love these people. They're too frustrating. And some folks can't love us because we're too frustrating. But give us the love that can only come from the spirit of God that lives in us so that we can share it and we can share everything we have and everything we are in your name. After the image of your son, we pray in his spirit. Amen.